These days, so many podcast hosts just riff through unprepared segments until they get to the next ad break for pills they know nothing about, cheap razors, and whatever else they can get a buck from. But the Higher Side Chats does it differently. We succeed or fail on the quality of the content and your desire to hear more of it. So you're about to hear another free first hour episode that's here to prove the two hour shows are worth subscribing for. Five shows a month for just $8. Members get a mobile friendly website, a decade of archives, a dedicated RSS feed for the best podcast apps, and a lot deeper discussion than a single hour can allow for. Sponsor free with more for thee. Get a free seven-day trial of THC Plus at thehiresidechats.com. Enjoy! In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Rock me like a hurricane, Higher Side Chatters. Doing what we do from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And we know that mainstream, well-connected, so-called academic sources are hard to trust on just about anything. They tend to distract away from the deeper story, deceive to protect those in the big club, craft the most profitable paradigm, and cut around the very heart of many subjects. Or omit anything that could lead one to get a better grasp on life, meaning, and the nearly endless power of mastering altered states of consciousness. So when you dive into a study of ancient Egypt, a civilization that was clearly obsessed with altered states of consciousness, magical ritual, and cultivating a deep understanding of life and death, it gets awkward. And the gatekeeping of those with the almighty Egyptologist title is on full display when compared to the rogue researchers bypassing the conventional career path and taking their books, films, and research right to the people. Well, that is certainly the case with today's guests Chance Gardner and Brad Clausen, two of the main names behind the very popular cult hit series Magical Egypt, which was originally based on the work of the late great John Anthony West, but in seasons two and three has gone above and beyond to highlight the incredible new discoveries of its own research team that have been blowing many minds online, and I am certainly one of them. So let's get into it. The ancient world reconstructors, filmmaking maestros, and counterculture Egyptologists extraordinaire, Chance and Brad. Brad and Chance, welcome to the higher side. Hey, Greg, thanks. Thanks for having us. Damn good intro. <laughs> I try, I try. And I'm really lucky to be talking to you guys because the work you've done on this series is amazing. Just so people get a sense of who's who. Chance is the writer, director, editor, and graphics animator of the series. And Brad, you're an executive producer and one of the main researchers on the team, I understand. And you have a background in doing rock band poster design. And we're actually Pearl Jam's in-house graphic designer for almost a decade. Just a little fun fact. But it's this art background that allowed you to make some of the most mind-blowing discoveries in the series because they largely come from seeing what the Egyptians encoded into their statues, art, and monuments. Is that right? Yeah, and I think that's sort of the main focus that 
Chance and I, and one of the other people involved in Magic Egypt too, Gary Osborne, have kind of taken a look at this stuff is from the perspective of artists looking at artwork rather than say, you know, Egyptologists or anthropologists or, you know, historians is that we're taking a look at this from specifically the angle of an artist take on analyzing artwork. So it very much is built around looking at things from the mind of people like Chance or myself or people who who spend their whole time in their mind's eye, you know, creating and coming up with imagery and encoding symbology into works of art. So it's very much from the perspective of the art world. Mm-hmm. And Chance, for people who are unfamiliar with the series, how would you summarize the three seasons that are out? Because they all kind of have their own focus, really, especially two and three. There's a kind of through line for all the episodes that it was really an homage, as you said in the introduction, to a great mentor of Brad's and mine, this character, John Anthony West. As you said, he was a kind of, he called himself a rogue Egyptologist. And just in a nutshell, the way the show started was that in Egyptology, sometime back in the maybe 20s or 30s, Egyptology split into these two different camps, and they were divided about really the interpretation of ancient Egypt. One of the camps is the camp that wins, you know, the camp that really writes all the history books and all the things that we learn in school, this very orthodox interpretation of ancient Egypt. And then there's this other camp that John West was a very outspoken member of that saw this a much smarter, much more sophisticated, and much more anomalous degree of technology and sophistication. And so the traditional interpretation of ancient Egypt was they were sort of primitive, superstitious savages, and it doesn't really paint them in this very sophisticated picture. But when you actually look at ancient Egypt, without the baggage of Egyptology, when you come at it from the arts, from the visual mediums, or engineering, or medicine, there's a lot of different fields of people that are contributing to magical Egypt who just, from their own wheelhouse, from their own expertise, they look at ancient Egypt and say, this place was much more sophisticated, they were much more intelligent than we've given them credit for. And there's something here that kind of speaks to the fact that we really have our history, human history, wrong, and that there seems to be a much earlier chapter of humanity that's really not acknowledged in Orthodox history. So there's science, there's this sophisticated philosophy, there's just this amazing examples of thinking across all the disciplines that are expressed through the art. And they're expressed through languages that only artists would understand. There's a lot of languages that art can speak in, and that artists, you know, Brad and I, and graphic designers and painters and sculptors, we all kind of were brought up understanding this language, visual language, that is not really necessary to understand for an Egyptologist or someone else. So there's a whole frequency that Egypt communicates on that traditional Egyptologists aren't really paying attention to. And that's why we were able to notice so many things. It's like this forest of low-hanging fruit, because if you come to ancient Egypt from this other school and you expect to find a much smarter, much more sophisticated science, it's there everywhere you look. And so the first season of Magical Egypt followed John West as he walked around these famous sites in Egypt, and especially some of the oldest sites in Egypt. And he pointed out that the very oldest structures from dynastic Egypt were built on top of incredibly old, like much, much older structures that were just as big and just as sophisticated, but just incredibly worn and beaten up like tens of thousands of years older. And so all over the place, John West would point 
your attention to these evidences that ancient Egypt as we know it, and all the ancient world, was sort of inherited from an even earlier chapter that isn't really acknowledged. And so the first season, I like to say, the first season introduced a riddle. The second two seasons are trying to answer that riddle, like understanding, recognizing that a riddle exists is different from solving the riddle. And so for us, when we start looking and we start seeing there's this really interesting, sophisticated, bizarre, very occulty, magical message that's coming through the art and all the aesthetic expressions of ancient Egypt. Once you understand it's there, you start then, what does it say? What does it mean? What is it trying to hide? If you could really understand the temples and the way that they're speaking, what is the message? And so in season two, we start with these incredible series of discoveries that Brad Clausen made that show that art, it was used in this way that Salvador Dali and a bunch of other artists have used this technique where you can kind of hide things in art. So if you know what you're looking for, they're very visible. But if you don't see them, if they're not pointed out to you, it's easy to miss. But in the artwork, in the statuary, and in the architecture of ancient Egypt, there are these very sophisticated schematics and likenesses, specifically of brain structure and some of Brad's early discoveries, and Gary Osborne as well, that really got the project started, show these incredibly sophisticated depictions of brain architecture and brainstem in the guise of gods. So they take pictures of gods and familiar things, but combine them in a way where they perfectly reproduce these very technical models of like the brainstem and the hemispheres, and in particular the diencephalon, that famous part of, you know, your head, your forehead that the Hindu cultures call the third eye. So we eventually started noticing that why is all this brain architecture included in the art? And when you understand it in context, the temples of ancient Egypt and all of ancient Egypt, as you also pointed out in your fantastic introduction, are really about consciousness, this ultimate mystery of consciousness. And when later cultures project back on Egypt that they were, you know, superstitious deity worship and things like that, it's really not giving them the full credit, but it seems to be, what we keep saying is it's like a handbook to human consciousness. And the more you look at the art, the more it's telling you, here's parts of the brain, here's what they do. And it's not just pointing at ordinary consciousness, but it's pointing at, as you'd said, advanced states of consciousness, advanced possibilities for consciousness. And it's really not only a manual for human consciousness, but a roadmap to where we should be going. And then the third episode gets much more specific, specifically digging deep into the iconography of the risen cobra at the third eye. And basically, we explore how the kundalini symbolism, this just incredibly bizarre practice that is specifically for consciousness amplification, but it involves sexuality and sex magic and stuff, how that is really the ultimate expression of Egyptian thinking. And so in those three episodes, we do basically, there's a puzzle here, what is it? In the second one, we say, here's how they communicated and expressed this puzzle. And then in the third season, it's basically what is the nature of this thing that they're talking about? What is the, the central core beliefs of ancient Egypt? And it's just profoundly strange and magical and occulty and psychedelic. Yeah, that is a really good summary. And the Kundalini aspect is pretty synchronistic for us because I just interviewed Dr. Joanna Kuyava, who is kind of a religious scholar who was studying tantric texts and apparently there's one very specific one that is encoded but yet descriptive 
And they were just having kind of an academic study of it, no kind of, um, you know, practice involved. But then she ended up in her relationship having a very spontaneous kundalini experience. Wow. And the description is just insane that you feel the energy, like this ball of energy going through your body. She considered it conscious because it would make decisions on where to be in her body. Wow. It translated itself down into the onto the man and he had an experience and you know, her whole premise in her book, The Other Goddess, is that the goddess and females have kind of been pushed to the side in Western culture because of these abilities, essentially. If a woman is trained in these abilities, they can obviously facilitate something. And yet all the women in the archetypes are either harlots like Mary Magdalene or, uh, you know, the sweet Mother Mary, and it's like there is no real example of just a strong, confident, well-educated, deeply knowledgeable woman who can hand over the gift of the Kundalini experience. So I loved season three because you do get deep into that, and there are a lot of people that you interview who have experiences with it, Yeah, and it seems like something that's been suppressed in the same way psychedelics have been suppressed. Yeah. You know, Graham Hancock, before Graham Hancock got kicked off of the TED Talks, <laughs> literally the talk that got him kicked off was this a war on consciousness, that there seems to be, for some reason, very Machiavellian in my experience, that there's this thing that is literally the most important thing that human beings can do. It's a self-evolutionary thing. If you practice it on your own, it's uh, incredibly powerful and just bizarre and transformative when you practice it with a partner. And it is the oddest thing in the world that in a culture as technologically sophisticated as we are in the West, there's just no mention of the Kundalini phenomena. And if you ever wondered why does the world seem so chaotic and empty and pointless, you really could point to the fact that the suppression of magic and the suppression of sexuality is the reason. And this is one of those strange subjects that hits right on the nexus of magic and sexuality. So it's super interesting. It's one of the most fulfilling and bizarre and interesting things that you can undertake. And it might very well be the actual point of existence. And a lot of people say when you're practicing this, you're building the vehicle that you're going to move into when your body stops functioning. And so there's huge metaphysical ramifications to studying this. And for whatever reason, as you just said, it is just absolutely suppressed in the West. So people are having these experiences all the time, but they have no framework and no way to like, what the hell was that? What just happened? And different people have different reactions. Like a lot of famous people through history have had Kundalini experiences, and it sort of brings out whatever your innate superpower is. So if you're a musician, you'll, you know, whatever you do that your unique genius is, it seems to really get in and amplify that. And as you said, it's a bizarre other kind of, very much like mushrooms, where you can tell there's an intelligence in me that isn't mine, and it's working with my intelligence to take me someplace that I wouldn't have gone otherwise. And so, I'm glad to hear that, Greg. I, when we first started this, very few people really seemed to know or to be that excited about Kundalini. And it's there. It's definitely there in our culture, but by no means has it taken center stage. And so, you know, it's kind of one of the things that we're hoping is to normalize this and tell people who've had the experience, you're not insane. This is something that's supposed to happen. And it's sort of like having a wet dream in a Victorian society where no sexuality is allowed and no reference to it in literature can happen. And 
you have this spontaneous sexual moment and you spend the rest of your life going, what the hell was that? And mm -hmm. secondly, how do I have that happen a lot more often? <laughs> and your point about the female and women is interesting because if you look at all the stories throughout mythology and religion, it's almost always there's a female who sort of revives or rejuvenates the male, be it Isis having to go around and find all the pieces of Osiris and reassemble them, or be it Mary with Jesus or Inanna in the Ishtar story, she has to descend down into the underworld to go find her male counterpart. And there is a really interesting aspect to this and all the stuff that through looking at it, where it does seem like it's really hard to find aspects to this stuff in regards to women. There's tons of stuff in regards to male and masculinity and that stuff. And it seems to me from my perspective that it almost seems like always like the female in the stories is like the midwife for the process for the male. And it's a really interesting component to that. And in, in all the stories too, it's all about sort of the weakness of the male being tempted by lustful women and that stuff. And women won't ever have, there's never stories about a woman being tempted by a bunch of like ripped, shredded, hot dudes. <laughs> so it is a really interesting component where you have this idea of the feminine side of things, not necessarily the female versus male of like gender and that stuff, but just feminine and masculine as far as positive and negative and, and yin and yang sort of things. There is an interesting aspect to the feminine side of things being sort of the catalyst or the thing that moves the process through. So that, that, is, that is a really interesting component to me that when you think about just the polarity of feminine and masculine, negative and positive, that it does seem to be the necessary force is the feminine force that helps the masculine side kind of be reborn or be rejuvenated. You can get into the whole idea of like matriarchy versus patriarchy and that stuff, but it does seem to imply in my sense that whatever the feminine aspect or the, that negative side of the polarity of a battery is sort of the moving force that gets this all going. Yes, man, I totally agree. And to me, a recurring theme is that people in authority want the masses in baseline consciousness only because yeah. when you have direct experiences, you start to wake up a little bit. Maybe you lose your fear of death. Maybe you wonder why you're working in this stupid cubicle job. Maybe you just don't care about their authority anymore because they tend to rule by fear. And these experiences can create fearless people. Yep. And so I think it might just be an unfortunate circumstance that one of the gateways is this Kundalini experience that can be facilitated from a female. So I think that, you know, the people say that Christianity started as a bunch of little mushroom fertility cults. I've heard this premise talked about before. Yep. And we also have the weird wine and cracker and, and Catholicism. And it's like, I think a lot of that is based off of an older, more genuine type of real spiritual experience. And then like some authority came in and said, okay, we're going to be the gatekeepers. We're going to be your liaisons to God. We'll tell you what he says. Don't you worry about it. Let's replace the mushroom with some watered down wine and a cracker and let's, you know, suppress the, the woman's femininity. And it just seems like, especially now, they've got a real lock on keeping us in that baseline consciousness. Anything that gets you there is either heavily suppressed, we're completely ignorant of it, or it will put you in a cage for several years of your life in the case of LSD and mushrooms and that kind of thing. And so to study a culture where it seems like they were just extremely open and curious about, well, how far can we push this stuff? It's really amazing. And as you say, the huge contribution to the study of Egyptology that this series makes is 
these artistic representations of parts of the brain. And as an audio only show, it's a little hard to drive home just how on the nose these discoveries are when it comes to key parts of the brain being encoded in the statues and architecture and even the headdresses and representations of the gods. But the graphic work in the series makes this super obvious. The eye of Horus correlation with the human limbic system, the ram sphinx terminals correlating to the human brainstem. There are statues of Diana and a statue of Artemis aphasia that equal the human brainstem. And people have always seen those statues with the legs fused together. The legs are never uh, open. And that's because this is an encoding of the human brainstem again. They just seem really obsessed with it. But I guess for the skeptics, how do we know that this isn't part of that whenever you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail kind of thing? Or as you've put it, seeing Jesus in the toast. I think one of the interesting things, I'll go back to the part about the Jesus in the toast thing, but to go back to the brainstem, I mean, we understand so little about consciousness. And I think one of the few things that we do understand is how to turn it on and turn it off. You know, when you go under for surgery, when you get any sort of anesthesiology or anything like that, we understand that you can turn off how to turn off consciousness and turn it on. But that's really to the extent of what we know about it. But when people have done studies about that, about how we turn it on and off, it always involves the brainstem. And so there's something very important about the brainstem and consciousness. And it does seem like that human beings throughout time have been sort of illustrating the brainstem as sort of a goddess, as this creator or god type archetype. And people could say, how would they know about this? And you can make the obvious answer that they probably, you know, somebody's head probably got cracked open or they probably were able to look inside people's heads. But then you could also make the case for, again, going back to psychedelic states that you maybe had visions or you maybe saw this stuff internally and you saw the image of a goddess and she looked this particular way or something like that. And it was actually maybe the vision that you were seeing from your psychedelic or your ecstatic state was that you were actually seeing a brainstem, but you just didn't know that's what you were seeing and you illustrated it and you drew it. And I think also to the point about if the only tool was a hammer and everything looks like a nail and seeing Jesus and toast and people just saying, oh, you're just seeing whatever you want to see. There is the visual correlations that you can look at and say like, these things look the same. They kind of look the same like that. But then you get into the mythological and the symbolical thing. And when you get into Artemis and those goddesses, they start having mythology about being the temples that they are dedicated to them always have like a well or a fountain inside the temple. There's always a stream or something coming out, or there's always this idea of these goddesses being masters of beasts and taming that lower base animal desire. So whenever you see Artemis with all those animals coming up her legs and all that sort of stuff, there's a whole other symbolic meaning to why those animals are on her legs. And you get an association with lakes and water and stuff like that, which then ties into, you know, the cerebral spinal fluid that descends down from the brainstem. So there's a lot more examples of that. But when you have the visual correlations, you can say, look, these things look the same. You can say, sure, they look the same, but you are seeing Jesus and toes. But then you can add to it the symbolic understanding of these characters and what else is behind the storytelling in that. And that helps tie in these ideas of a anatomical, physiological symbolism that is taking place. And also you start to realize that the reason that they're showing the brainstem and dealing with these things is about that sort of neurophysiology, about the fluids of the body. And if you think about 
the brain, the brain lives in fluid. It's, it's bathed in fluid. And so if you can purify that fluid that surrounds this wet hardware of the brain, it's sitting in fluid. If you're able to refine that fluid, you can create a better bath that the brain sits in. And that is allows you to access these sort of exalted states of consciousness. So you can start making mother, uh, making mother, pun intended. Um, you can start making other associations to the fluid and the water symbolism and that sort of thing. And these symbols of goddesses being associated with fluid. And even the multi-breasts of those statues show you this idea of, you know, breastfeed the young. And so the, the fluid of the, the cerebrospinal fluid coming out of the brainstem is feeding the garden of the human body. So there's there's ways that you can not only show the visual correlation, but you can also show the symbolic correlation of these symbols too. So that's sort of what we're hopefully trying to do. I'm sure there's plenty of people that are skeptics that will say, no matter what, we're just looking at, you know, we're seeing clouds and we're seeing whatever we want to see in them. One of the things that we've spent the most time addressing from the beginning of this research project, and it continues to this day, but less and less often now, and we hear it almost exclusively from Egyptology because the art professors and art historians and a bunch of a bunch of lots of other fields are completely on board with this. It's just Egyptology that doesn't particularly want to admit that they've missed such a giant, you know, aspect of ancient Egypt and the ancient world. But when they say you're seeing Jesus in toast, one of the things we've thought about is like confirmation bias means you look up into the sky and you see a cloud and you're like, yeah, that cloud looks like a duck kind of, but if you looked up into the sky and you saw the clouds formed like, wow, that looks a lot like my neighbor Brad. And that other cloud looks like he's mowing the lawn. And that other cloud looks like exactly like his wife standing next to him. And she's holding up their passport. Cloud. And it has, <laughs> I can imagine the circumstances under which you saw that cloud. <laughs> so confirmation bias is a legitimate thing. And it's an important part of science. I mean, science doesn't prevent artists. You know, artists are capable of engaging in scientific thought. And so, of course, you have to consider the fact that you're just projecting or seeing what you want to see. But one of the things that I keep coming back to is how many correlations do you have between a piece of art and a piece of biology before you say, well, this is way beyond what you'd expect if you were just seeing Jesus in toast. So I can take one of these statues. And by the way, if anybody wants to see these visuals, go to www.magicalegypt.com or go to YouTube and type in there's a talk that Brad and I just did called Sympathy for the Baphomet. Yes. Type that in and you'll see the visuals of all of these discoveries so you can see what we're talking about. But there are things like, well, they're sperm cells. Like, there's these very clear, obvious sperm cells in Egyptian hieroglyphs. And if you're, you know, you're just whatever, you got sperm cells on the brain or something, <laughs> which apparently some people do. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with that. But anyway, no, I mean, you can see how someone would say, oh, you're just projecting that. But in this particular relief where you see the sperm cells, there's a god with an erect phallus coming out of the tip of the erect phallus is this sperm cell. And the legend of this, this hieroglyph, is actually called the waters of life. So you have positional confirmation. You have the actual, I mean, you can look at it, and it's obviously a sperm cell. But then the name of it suggests what it is. And there's layers and layers and layers of context. So in Brad's discoveries, all of these things are all related to divinity. And it's not just that this thing resembles a brainstem, like these certain class of statues. 
they resemble the brainstem to such a degree that me, as a non-doctor, I've never gone to medical school, um, but I can take one of these statues. If I did go to medical school and I had a medical exam, I could go into a class with this statue and I could ace a test of all the articulations of the brainstem. Like literally every piece and part of the brainstem is captured in this statue. And it just, by using postures and certain stances, you see these statues and they don't exactly look accurate if it was just a person, but they're changed a little bit here and there. In one case, Ishtar has really big bulbous shoulders that aren't correct anatomically, but they help it match perfectly to the thalamus in the brainstem. So if I can go into a medical exam and I can pass a test using only this little statue because it so perfectly represents all the articulations of the brainstem, and then further it talks about how this statue is the goddess of creativity or, in the case of Osiris, the iconic statue of Osiris with his legs joined and his arms folded in that peculiar way. Part for part of the statue exactly corresponds to the same parts of the brainstem that the Ishtar and Inanna statues. And then they talk about the function, like the things that the god does turn out to be, in a lot of cases, describing the function of this part of the brain. So people say, you know, anybody can cut a head open and draw what they see. But there's an additional level of context where it specifically, in a lot of different cases, shows you a brain part and then talks about, in legend form, what that brain part does. So it's easy to just look at something and recreate it, but they seem to know what each of the parts of the brain had to do with consciousness. And the whole thing decries this much more sophisticated level of not just biology, but understanding of consciousness. The idea, too, that you talk about this association with divinity, I mean, when you think about entheogens and psychedelics, I mean, that word entheogens means to talk to God. And that term God is such a heavily loaded term anyway to begin with. There's so much baggage with that word God. But when you look at like that painting of, of Michelangelo's painting of the creation of Adam, God is in the middle of the brain. He's coming out through the middle of the brain. He's reaching out and he's touching Adam. And so there's a guy named Bill Donnie who has made the point about that painting that Adam's already created in that painting. His eyes are open. And remember the old AT&T, reach out and touch someone, you know, yes. slogan. Michelangelo in his painting is basically depicting divinity or God reaching out of the inside of the brain and touching man or touching Adam. And you see this again and again, this idea of this brainstem being representative of divinity. And again, if you shed all the baggage of that word God and divinity, and you go towards the term of just entheogen, think about any time people have been on psychedelics, have felt like they've been in the presence of God, or they've been in the presence of all-knowing, or they've been in the presence of wisdom, you really start to understand this idea that depicting divinity coming out of the center of your brain is sort of an illustration showing you of this kind of, for lack of a better term, sort of this cosmic internet that we all have in our heads where we can kind of connect to universal truth. And in the, I mean, that's in my way, when I think of the term God, I've, I've, I've been able to not have any baggage associated with the term God or with the term religion or with the term divinity. I just think of that term to mean knowing, you know, wisdom. Right. And, and if you can connect in these states of gnosis or these states of wisdom, you can have an epiphany that allows you to figure out how to put a plane in the sky or how to come up with a cure for a disease or how to figure something out and you've actually retained that knowledge, then you, in a sense, perhaps you spoke to God mm -hmm. and now you have, you have knowledge and you have that sort of thing. So again, if you take it out of the 
bearded man floating in the sky with the clouds of the person who created everything, but you think about that idea of divinity just as this source of truth, then that's another really interesting aspect of our ancestors depicting divinity relating to our brains and this idea that our brains have a way to connect to knowing, to connect to gnosis. And you go through all the esoteric sects of human civilization, and at their core, the thing that they're always seeking is truth and wisdom. Yes. And I think that our ancestors figured out how to access these states of truth or wisdom. And what do you do when you want to personify? How are you going to personify, you know, at every New Year's Eve, we personify the changing of the year by having an old man with a sickle and an hourglass, and he's the end of the year. And then there's baby New Year who's born, and that's representative of the new year. We represent principles as human beings. We anthropomorphize these things, right? So if you're going to anthropomorphize wisdom or truth or divinity or these things, you would make it this old bearded man or whatever this, whatever your God or whatever your thing is. But to me, that's where this really is the most fascinating of this subject matter is it seems our ancestors figured out ways to tap into states of gnosis, to tap into states of truth. And call that truth God, call it whatever you want, call it Sophia, call it Ma'at, call it any of the names you want to give it. There's knowledge there. There's actual ways you can tap into things. It's not just some spiritual woo-woo, oh, I feel one with everything, and I feel like I've met my creator, any of this stuff. There's actual knowledge that you can pull out of these things. And that's why I think when we look at the Egyptians, we go, how did they know how to do these things? Or how did this civilization know how to do this? I think they figured out how to tap into states of knowing, yes. and they, they learned, you know? And so... That idea of divinity to me is more, you know, this idea of gnosis or knowledge. And that's the really compelling part is when you look at these statues, they're all showing, and these paintings and that stuff is they're showing you that you can tap into these states of knowing. And that's what happens when you go into the temple and to the Holy of Holies is that, you know, it changes your way of knowing. and You see the world in different ways. And my friend, the first time I ever took LSD, gave the best expression, the best description of it I could possibly ask for. I was like, what's it like? And he just smiled at me and he said, you know, you'll never look at the world the same way. And that's what happens in the temple mythology. There's a woman named Margaret Barker who studied at Oxford and has this whole study of temple mysticism that she's created. And she talks about what happens when the priest goes into the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is represented in the temple where the, the third ventricle of the brain is. But she says when the priest goes into the Holy of Holies, he it changes his way of knowing. He's shown the mysteries of the world. He's shown the measurements of the heavens and these things. So you have, through art and through symbol, a way to describe how to tap into these states of knowing and that it involves the brain. It involves the human brain and the physiology of the body. So that, to me, is where it becomes the most useful to modern society. Yes, yes. So well said. I do love that aspect of, like, where do ideas come from? Well, they seem to come from contact we can make with other beings in another realm. And Westerners have this idea that, oh, well, if they learned about the brain, they must have cut a bunch of brains open and then tried to piece it together because that's how Westerners think. But as John Anthony West says in that first season, what he has come to realize from this study is there are different ways to gain knowledge. And I agree with you about God. To me, God is like the central node in the network, just the right. biggest, most central node in the network or the field. And we have other examples, too, of not only didactic art, like you mentioned the Michelangelo painting, Da Vinci did it, too. So we know there are other cultures that have hidden 
deep symbolism of consciousness and the brain in artwork. So that's not up for debate. And then we also know that there are other cultures like the Dogon who, uh, you know, still are living in a pretty primitive, natural way embedded in their environment. And they have knowledge that they shouldn't be able to have about star systems and a deep cosmology about the life-death process and where souls go. And again, we say, oh, that's cute. They have a weird superstition. And anthropology, God, such a missed opportunity. We have decades and decades of anthropology where we have just dismissed what these people say and considered it superstition. And it's just awful, really, because you got to throw it all out and go revisit all these cultures and actually take them seriously. And in all these cases, I think they're all tapping into the field. It's like we're the only culture we think that we're so advanced <laughs> and we're so cut off from the real fields of knowledge. We're stumbling around in the dark trying to piece together how this stuff works when we've lost the real connection, which seems to kind of come from being embedded in your environment and then also exploring consciousness. And these cultures that are just hanging out in huts in the dirt, they actually have a really deep cosmology. And the only way to explain it without like laboratory science is that they have a direct, they have a direct connection through their consciousness to this field, this Akashic record. And maybe the gods and spirits who actually tell them about this stuff. Yeah. They get anthropomorphized in the art. And then there's a mythology crafted around the beans that kind of talk about their personality and the areas of knowledge they have. And that's where we get Egyptian mythology. It isn't just some made up thing that they thought was interesting because they were bored. It's like a deep, real thing. But Westerners just struggle with it because we don't connect to the field as often as really we should. There's a saying that it's been around forever, but the thing is, that there's three things you can't hide. You can't hide the sun, you can't hide the moon, and you can't hide the truth. But what you can do to hide the sun or to hide the moon is to hang a bunch of other moons up, or just like they used to do in World War II, throw flack up into the air. There are all of these expressions. And no matter what anybody says about ancient Egypt, the expressions don't change. It's just that there's people that presume to stand between you and the message of ancient Egypt that changed it just enough. And I think a lot of this happened in organized Christianity when the battle for Christianity versus paganism happened, that there's things you can't hide, but you can tell stories over the top of them that fundamentally change the meanings. They change the importance of these things just enough so that they're not of any use to you anymore. Like Greg, you'd mentioned a thing that I'm eternally fascinated with, that at some point the mushroom cults evolved over thousands of years into Christianity, where you go and you eat this cracker and they specifically tell you the cracker is the flesh of the gods. And, you know, anybody, if you read Terence McKenna, um, the mushroom is called the flesh of the gods. You go nowadays and you sit in this room and you eat a cracker and you don't really, I mean, I, you know, I was forced to go to church my whole young life. And you go and you'd never have an actual spiritual experience in church. But you go and you do all of these empty things that used to mean something and they used to be a very powerful technology, but they were changed just enough to remove the power out of the technology. And if you look without that modern baggage, without the flack that they've thrown up to obscure this truth that's hard to hide, what it appears is that these things are not about something outside of you, that these gods and these holy attributes, these godlike abilities, it's not for you to appreciate what a great goddess Inanna was or Ishtar. 
what it is is you. It's it's like Homer Simpson. It's every man that all of these things, Osiris, the god, Ishtar, and Nanana, these things are all representative. It's like you showing you a mirror to yourself. If you lived in a world with no mirrors and suddenly somebody showed, held a mirror up to you and showed you, here's what you are, the parts of you yourself that you can't see, or the most important parts of yourself. These are dynamic models or schematics of you. So one of the things that I've tried to do in Magical Egypt that I think separates us from everywhere else is we're not about aliens. We're not about how many pharaohs can dance on the head of a pin. We're not about chronologies of pharaohs and dynasties. We really have one mandate in Magical Egypt, which is the most cutthroat criteria for any bit of entertainment. What's in it for me? What we've tried to do is take the operative stuff from Egypt. You can, you know, you can watch baseball and collect facts and figures all day long. You can study something as a objective, you know, third party thing. And it's interesting enough, like, you know, watching the ballet or something. But as John West used to say, you don't really understand baseball until you've played baseball. What we've tried to do is take the harvestable technology from Egypt and present it to people in a way that it's of immediate use. It's a technology for you to understand and start exploring your own consciousness, this weird room you have inside of your head. And we live in this society where everything about society is constantly drawing you out of your head. So the ancients didn't have TVs. They didn't have Netflix. You know, when you go to lunch and you eat in a restaurant, there's music playing. And you just, all of our society is set up to keep you from really exploring these weird mysteries in your head. And all of these expressions of ancient Egypt that were this amazing unity of art and science, like people don't pay enough attention to that, that art and science used to be married so that the point of art, when art was important, was that it conveyed didactic. You said that awesome word, didactic. Art in the ancient world was didactic, as was architecture, and it was made to convey a message. This is before Gutenberg's printing press and before books, and so you would walk through a book, and it was a, it was a temple. And it's for you. It's a mirror to show you to yourself. And to not just describe to you how you are in your default factory issue setting, but to say, here's this thing you didn't know about yourself that you can do, this thing that you can become, and all of these amazing properties of consciousness that are on the further frontiers of consciousness. And we know all these things, psychic ability and precognitive ability and just millions of things that we're all pretty familiar with, but most people in the Western world don't realize these are absolute properties and just default abilities of consciousness. You just need someone to show you how to get there. And it seems to be what the expression of ancient Egypt was, was here's some things that you need to do to understand yourself and also to get the most out of yourself, like inheriting a car without an owner's manual. You never realized that your car could levitate or travel back and forth in time because you never read the owner's manual. You just got in like a monkey and started hitting switches and flipping knobs and stuff. But when you really start to understand the message of ancient Egypt, it really is talking about how you have this whole extra register to your consciousness, like in architecture. There's, you inherit a house and you didn't realize that there's a second and third floor that are, you know, <laughs> the door's hidden somewhere in the basement. And it's for you. I mean, the whole point is it's about you. It shows you to yourself and it shows you this promise that nobody's told you about. Our tagline for the show is there's a door in your head that no one told you about. Right. I would say, too, Greg, to your point about you know, when people have psychedelic experiences, particularly with DMT, and they talk about entities or any of these things, or, you know, 
I personally always feel like I'm not getting good stuff because anytime I've tripped, I've never seen an entity. I've never spoken to any anything. Every time I've had a psychedelic experience, it's always been a dialogue in my head with what seems to be the thought in the same voice in my head that I think with, you know, it seems to be an internal dialogue with sort of myself in a sense. Maybe somebody could say that's your higher self or whatever. But like I said, I always feel like I'm getting gypped because I'm not seeing entities. I'm not seeing clockwork elves. I'm not seeing... And, but it made me think about that movie Contact where, you know, when Jodie Foster travels this interstellar trip and she sees an alien and the alien's starting to form out of this aura and you as the movie, you're like, oh, cool, what's the alien going to look like? And it's sort of this bummer because it's her dad. You know, it's not this cool, awesome sci-fi alien. It's just her dad. And you realize like, her dad would be the thing that she would respond to the most and listen to the most. So I always think of whenever people have psychedelic experiences, whatever is speaking to you in that moment or whatever entity or whatever it is, is some part of your consciousness is like, you'll listen to this if I take on this form or if I take on this sort of appearance. And if you think about it the same way as a dream, you know, we do this every night. You know, you go lay in a dark room and you, your consciousness traverses this whole other place. And you see people in your dream, you see entities, you see dead relatives, you see, you know, and they maybe give you a piece of information. Maybe they say something to you and you go, I had this dream and I saw my grandmother or whatever. And she told me something and then made you realize like, oh, I got to go write that book or I got to go do something. And it's actually beneficial to you. You know, yeah. we don't think of that as that crazy when we think about the idea of having a dream and getting some sort of information. And when you go into looking at dream incubation, that's the thing that the Greeks were doing. And that's a, an academic field of study is dream incubation, is that you would go to a, a sleep dormitory and you would make a sacrifice or pay the priest to somehow, and you're supposed to sleep in the dormitory and have a dream. And hopefully Asclepius, the god of healing, would come and visit you and tell you what's wrong with you. But if he didn't, you'd go in the next morning, you'd go talk to the priest of the temple and they would interpret your dream for you. And you'd hopefully have some sort of cure for some sort of ailment or something like that. What isn't as commonly accepted in this field of incubation is the idea of divinatory incubation, which is sort of what, what we're talking about. One of the things that I'm super interested in, like you said, Greg, I'm fascinated with the idea of where do ideas come from. And this idea of divinatory incubation, like I said, isn't as accepted in much in academia, but it's basically the same thing as dream incubation. You know, and you have in, in like the secret rites of the said festival in Egypt, Jeremy Naylor writes about this, is that the pharaoh goes into a dark room, he sits in a dark room, he has, he probably takes some sort of food, some sort of sacred food, he changes his clothes, he goes through some sort of purification ritual, and then he has a vision. And he's supposed to be seen by these sort of the Ogduat, or like the 12 archetypal gods of Egypt, and he's supposed to have a vision. And then when he comes out of that state, he's reborn and he's a new person. We do this every night. We go through this ritual every night. You probably purify yourself. Maybe you wash your face. Maybe you take a bath. Mm. You put on different clothes. You put on like linens or pajamas and you get into a bed in a dark room in a dark <laughs> box and you lay there perfectly still and your consciousness, you have a vision. You have a crazy David Lynch movie going on in your head that you're somehow getting some sort of information or maybe you're just rehashing the events of the day or maybe you're having an epiphany and something's being told to you. And we do this, it's super common. And then if you think about if there were priests that were out there doing this, but they were doing it for the sake of exploring those states of consciousness, and they're going through, they're washing themselves, they're going through internally and externally, they're eating some sort of sacrament or some sort of food, and then they go in a stone, dark stone room, and they lay there for two days, for three days or something like that, and they try and not fall asleep, and they try and have that sensory deprivation of just being alone with your consciousness. When you go into the 
king's chamber in the pyramid, it's the darkest darkness you've ever seen. Like not only is your face, you're, that you can't see your hand in front of your face, it's right in front of your nose. You can't see your hand. It's the darkest darkness I've ever experienced. So all you're left with is your consciousness. All you're left with is your thoughts. And so it's not that hard to think that our ancestors were curious about this stuff and figured out that if you lay still <laughs> in a dark stone room that's inside a mountain, basically, you have removed the whole external world and you're just going into your thoughts, you're going to have some epiphanies. You're going to have some, you've isolated consciousness. You've removed every other sensory experience and now you're just there with your thoughts. And they tapped into how to get to these states of knowing. And it's something that we do every night that we kind of don't really think about. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I really love that nighttime ritual analogy. That's good. That's good. And it's also interesting because there are examples in the past where at least stories, you know, who knows what to make of some of these stories that involve the astral realm. But it seems like in some situations you can contact something on the other side and it's like, whoa, holy shit. Hey, this is crazy. And then the being on the other side says, oh, if you want to have more sustained contact, do this, 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 and this. And then cultures can form around certain rituals and like drum circles, getting into certain states of exhausted consciousness. You know, you really exhaust the body right. and then they break through or spirit quests. Like sometimes these beings, whether they're part of the self or separate, that is obviously up for debate, even in. Crowley's whole system of magic, the holy guardian angel, people who have been involved in this for decades, I ask them, and they still aren't sure if it's something different or a part of themselves. We'll never know. I think it's, you know, fractals of the one big node out there. And, <laughs> and if, if we're all that, then it's really hard to separate anything or make a real distinction in that way. But Chance, I wanted to bring you back in here and, and ask you about this before we ran out of time, because I've heard you talk about it and it's super interesting. I really love when we can find the source of certain myths and how they might relate to consciousness or these mechanisms. And I've heard you make this point that even the Arabian myth of the genie in the lamp is symbolic of a Kundalini experience. The genie emerges in a snake-like fashion. And if it's not done in a controlled way, it can be chaotic. Talk to us about that a little bit, because it is weird. Everywhere you look in the old world, you we have these stories and these myths and these motifs, and they all seem to point to the same thing. And we just don't have that context. Give us that context. There's a really loaded symbol of the death of Osiris. And Osiris got chopped into all these pieces, and then he was scattered all over the place. And Isis had to take all the pieces of Osiris and reassemble them. We had a weirdly parallel experience when we were doing research for this project, because once you start looking at Kundalini symbolism and third eye symbolism, and in particular, snake symbolism, it's everywhere. And the interesting thing about it is that each culture will give you maybe three out of the five pieces that you need, and they'll all withhold certain key pieces. But if you take five or six cultures and lay them all out in a grid, they don't always obscure the same thing. So you get like one, two, and three from ancient Egypt. But then in Kabbalism, you get three and five or you, you know what I mean? And so when you look at all these cultures that use snake symbolism and that use third eye symbolism, and that are obviously talking about magic and things, different cultures withheld different parts. So when you start, like I'm right now, I'm in Asia, I'm, I'm in Thailand right now, and I'm right close to 
Angkor Wat, mm. which is the most Kundalini. Angkor Wat temple is this giant 3D walkthrough book that talks to you about Kundalini and the secrets of Kundalini. So all of the, I mean, amazing Norse cultures, ancient Germanic cultures. Brad in the show talks a lot about how many different cultures, and it's been a subject of fascination for me as well. Part of the reason as an artist that you see these icons, they keep showing up and the art direction is different from culture to culture, but the meaning is the same and the clusters are the same. You always get a snake, you get triangles or threefold structures symbolizing the pineal gland, the pituitary and the thalamus. You see the snake rising. Almost always you see two snakes intertwining with one another, like the Ida and Pingala. The light at the top of the head too. That Yeah, the light at the top of the head. Exactly. Yeah. The shining circle at the top of the pyramid with the light coming out and it's a radiant light. So. Every culture that has ever risen to any kind of significance keeps trying to tell this story. And I think it's only later that the story got obscured. And you reminded me, both of you reminded me of an interesting story. Romans, like the Egyptians, really kept a lot of careful records and wrote everything down. And there's so many stories. I, I got I had the incredible privilege of uh, interviewing Stephen Skinner a while back. Oh, me too. And he said this amazing story that I'd never heard about Egypt that Egypt was unconquerable for centuries. And there was some really clever Roman general who had this idea that we're going to steal all of the magical scrolls in Egypt. We're going to take out all the magicians and we're going to separate them from their ability to do magic. And it was the first country or entity that was ever able to conquer Egypt. And the Romans to this day, and there's all kinds of records in ancient China and in England, oddly enough. The ruling class, whether it's true or not, have always been terrified of people who are practicing magic outside of a government-authorized or government-sanctioned capacity. And so, in a weird way, there has been this kind of voice or this tendency to retract any examples or any magical manuals. So, most of the magical scrolls in Egypt were stolen, taken by the Romans, and that continued. You know, a lot of the Roman hierarchy went into the Anglo-Saxon world, and that fear of people doing magic on a freelance, a rogue basis is really there. And whether or not there's anything to it, you can't escape the fact that they thought there was something to it, and they were terrified of it. And so, a uh, fascinating story that, oh, and the other thing was that they used to talk about how they hated the Gnostics, because if you have this certain degree of information, like basically the secret and the esotericism is the continuity of consciousness through multiple lives. And if you stop identifying with your meat body, your meat wagon, mm -hmm. and you start identifying with that thing that is you, that eternal spark of consciousness that's been through a thousand bodies, you know, suddenly you can't bully me anymore. You can't threaten me. You can't control me by fear because I know that I would rather hold on to my principles and what I know is true and my oath to be a constructive force on earth. I'm not going to compromise any of those things just because you threatened to cut my head off because, you know, it's that whole idea of Obi-Wan and Darth Vader right. and Star Wars. It's such a deep part of our zeitgeist that if you have this broader view that comes from being a magician or being an esotericist, that I'm not the thing that can die, I'm this thing that rides bodies like from body to body over, you know, perhaps infinite amounts of time, you cannot be controlled or subjugated anymore. And I think a big part of the industrial age was that these barons and these people who control society start looking at all of us like, you're not here to change things. You're not here to break through new mental spaces. You're here to work. You're here to be the workforce. And we don't want to 
We don't want the workforce losing its homogenousness. We don't want individual people you know, elevating themselves to a point where they can't be controlled or where they would invent a new technology that puts the power structure out of business. So for all kinds of reasons, some of them good and some of them extremely petty, there does seem to be a hesitancy in most governments to suppress magical tradition, to suppress actual magic. It's the reason why we can't, you never turn on the TV and hear someone talking about Kundalini. There's a fascinating thing about Kundalini. When you have a successful Kundalini event, one of the common experiences that people who've had a Kundalini event report is they have this visit to the Akashic Records. Yes. For a moment in the Kundalini experience, you merge with this plane of pure knowledge. And depending on what you're able to understand, you will get this download of this anomalous degree and sophistication of knowledge that it's like you've gone to school in three or four minutes that a Kundalini experience takes. So people, amazing people, Napoleon, Florence, who's the famous nurse, uh, Florence, Gale, all kinds of crazy people you wouldn't think about. A lot of immortal poets, people who've had the Kundalini experience, it's like it supercharges them. And they've had this experience. They've danced with all knowledge. And they walk away operating at a higher level. And the one thing that almost nobody says after a Kundalini experience is, man, let me go out and get a job and work on an assembly line right. and uh, sell my life and efforts to someone else. It, you become ungovernable. You become unbullyable. You can become uncontrollable. And you elevate out of being a beast of burden. You're no longer a chicken or a cow. <laughs> and you start becoming a human. You walk upright on your feet, whereas everyone else is really, I mean, I don't mean to be mean, but most people operate on this very you know, milk cow kind of level of consciousness, hey. <laughs> especially Brad. <laughs> I resemble and, um, that remark. <laughs> and so it's, I, I just personally, I think that the reason why governments have always been hesitant and, you know, it hasn't always been that way. It's pretty much since all the school books were rewritten at the turn of the century, you know, there were some financial powers, the same conspiratorial families that everyone talks about killed midwifery. They withdrew all the old esoteric books from the libraries and from the schools, and they would only fund schools that agreed to teach out of these new authorized textbooks. And in this one fell swoop at the beginning of the Great Depression, all of the old school books were withdrawn, and only the schools that taught out of these new modern school books, so allopathic medicine instead of homeopathic medicine, and suppression of the feminine principle and an absolute negation of magic, painting the snake as, an, as a bad thing, you know, how common it is that a lot of middle-of-the-road Christians see the snake symbolism or the Baphomet, and they freak out because, oh, that's a symbol of pure evil. And it's not really that. It's just that the ruling class who doesn't want this empowering technology falling in the hands of workers, they'll do whatever they can to suppress these things, withdraw the books. At the turn of the century, like 1800s, 1900s, None of this stuff was that secret. It was this phenomenal secret that's just, it took me 20 years to figure out and took Brad, I don't know what, a weekend to figure <laughs> out. But there's this triad in your head, the pineal gland, pituitary, and thalamus. And the pituitary and thalamus both have these little magnetic fields around them. And when you work on them enough, you increase the magnetic field until eventually they overlap, kind of like the vesica Pisces thing that everyone misunderstands. When your two magnetic fields overlap, then you start developing these higher attributes of consciousness, like knowing what other people are thinking or knowing what's going to happen before it happens, and a million other things. Mm -hmm. The Hindus talk about this quite a lot. But 
for that reason that you become ungovernable, you become a wild card, and that you might very well in those moments of epiphany, you know, invent a new car that doesn't take gasoline, that runs on sunlight, or it might occur to you that what's the whole point of a hierarchy? Hierarchies are unnatural. Like hierarchies are good for animals, monkeys and stuff, but our whole society is based on hierarchy, which is incredibly unfair. It's incredibly unhealthy. And when you do your first, uh, the first time you smoke pot even, but when you do a lot of psychedelics and you start questioning, why does there have to be a hierarchy? Why do I have to go and spend my days in an office working for someone who has absolute authority over me where my will doesn't matter? So many things about our modern society really resemble a chicken farm or a milk farm. And we are just these beasts of burden that are being harvested for our energy and our ideas. And so there's this historical fear of magic. So yeah, the Romans hated the Gnostics because they couldn't bully them. The Gnostics said, oh, go ahead and kill me. I'll just, you know, I'll come back again as, you know, a Hindu girl next time or whatever. <laughs> and they couldn't be bullied. And the other one more thing about, I'm sorry, this turning into a screed, but speaking of Dick Cheney <laughs> and um, Bush and whatnot. <laughs> like, and another did, thing. I wouldn't be surprised to to hear that, you know, they're not particularly esoteric people, but I just watched Eyes Wide Shut the other night again. One thing I absolutely believe happens is communication with other entities, wow. non-physical entities, and sometimes some very dull, dreary people who are just nothing but sycophants to these disembodied powers. You know, you with a Ouija board or the right rituals, you can contact intelligences, and they might promise you earthly wealth and power in exchange for you doing things for them. And so I think a lot of government people, especially big people who've changed the course of humanity, aren't doing this because of their own power. They're doing it because through rituals, you can contact things that will tell you to do things that are incredibly anxiety or horror or pain causing. You know, the whole idea of archons, that there are higher entities that feed on our pain. Yeah. So with regard to those people that don't seem smart enough to be esotericists themselves, I think it's entirely possible that one of the things that happens at those high levels of the elite is if you are doing these rituals to contact things and they tell you long-term things that you should be doing to society, it might not be the people themselves, but they might be acting on behalf of more malevolent entities that feed on pain. And it's, I mean, I, I'm not saying that I would go to the stake on that, but it sure does explain why everything seems to be broken and never wants to heal. That if you have, you know, it's unnatural to make a cow produce so much milk or botrytis. There's this thing you can do to wine. You can disease a grape. You can cause a disease in grapes on purpose that makes them overproduce sugar. And the grapes hate it. <laughs> but the wine that you have is this really beautiful kind of dessert wine called Botrytis wine. And it seems to me like humanity has become one of those things that something's feeding off of us and it gets more nutrition from us when we're miserable. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that word archons and that word luge or yeah, David Lynch yeah. talked about it when he talked about Garmin Bosia, that fantastic scene in Firewalk with me where these two higher entities are fighting over this guy who's a lower life form. And they are like, his pain is mine. It's mine to eat. It's not yours. And they're having a, a fight over who gets to eat the pain and suffering of poor Leland. So I, I just, a little commentary on what Brad said, that when you start thinking along those lines, society makes a lot more sense. God, what a, what a can of worms to open <laughs> up at the zero hour. Uh, yeah. Real quick, Greg, I was going to say, Back to your point, that the interesting thing about that genie concept is the idea that goes back to virtue and vice, which is like you said, where it can go good or bad for you. You know, if you the genie can grant you these three wishes, 
if you give in to vice and you say, I want wealth, money, and power, then maybe your wishes, be careful what you wish for sort of thing. Whereas if you give in to more virtue and you wish for sort of beneficial things, and then that genie helps you out a little bit more instead of harms you. Then also that idea of the bottle, the bottle being something that's a fluid or even the glands of the body being something that retains a fluid in it. And vapor, the genie comes out of the bottle like a, like a vapor. The bottle a- might be the most important part of this. Oddly enough, the bottle and that particular shape of the bottle. I'm sorry to interrupt. Brad, no, go ahead, Chance. Go ahead. Well, largely because of some of Brad's discoveries, there's this thing in all of alchemy that talks about the Athenor or Athenor. And in the English history, you know, the Holy Grail, the chalice, the cup, there's this part of your brain that collects this certain kind of fluid that's involved in the Kundalini process. And it looks like this bottle, your it's the ventricle, the third ventricle. This is one of Brad's discoveries that part of where consciousness comes from and the thing that accumulates this magical fluid, part of Kundalini is that you go without sexual release for a certain period of time. And instead of using these incredibly powerful hormones and chemicals to create a new life, if you don't expend yourself sexually for a period of time, it starts to build up and it starts to transform uh, very much. If you know the metaphor of alchemy, this is what alchemy is actually talking about. That you take this stuff in your body, hormones and semen and blood, and if you don't expend them, if you do these certain yogic kundalini tantric activities, this starts to turn back on itself. And instead of going out of your body to create a life, it starts working on you and it improves your brain and improves electrical conductivity of your brain. It makes you heal faster, your cellular repair rates faster. And all the place where this takes place is this part of your brain, the third ventricle and the fourth ventricle. And when you look at it from a certain view, it looks exactly like the genie's bottle. So in that metaphor, and this is an example of how every culture tells the story in a different way, if you have enough of this sexual accumulation, very much like wearing socks and rubbing your feet across the carpet, you get this kind of weird electrostatic energy that builds up. You go, like, if you can get up to like 90 days without an orgasm, this fundamentally strange thing happens to you and you start becoming viable in a Kundalini sense. And weird, weird things will start happening to you. And it happens in this holy grail. And the genie in the metaphor is this magical kind of property or this higher consciousness that can form. It's the genie in the bottle. So if you go without sexual expenditure for a certain period of time, and that's why if you let it get away from you, if you rub, first of all, rub the bottle. Hello. You got to rub the bottle to get the genie out. If you let the genie out in a bad way, in an uncontrolled fashion, just like expending your sexuality in the middle of this ritual where you're trying to go 90 days, you can really hurt yourself. Or if you do it wrong, you can go insane. That sexual accumulation sometimes just drives a person insane or amplifies whatever imperfections they have in them. So the metaphor of the genie in the bottle is amazing that there literally is this magical entity that you can grow within yourself in the genie's bottle, which is just this central part of your brain that happens to be that exact shape. And so it's a fascinating thing to me. And thank you for bringing that up, Greg, because you really struck at the heart of our show when you talk about that. And that's just one example of million, well, hundreds of different cultures who all tell the secret in a different way. And it's all sort of hidden under layers of metaphor. But if you know what you're looking at and you understand what these symbols say, every one of the cultures have these key symbols that are signposts that say, hey, this is a Kundalini metaphor. And it always has to do with the third eye, that place where if you look right at the third eye and if your head was invisible, directly behind that is where your the third ventricle is. And if you look at it from the side, as Brad and Gary demonstrated, your diencephalon, the brain as it looks from the side, is exactly these combination of shapes. 
And the place where the magic happens, the place where this sexual accumulation is transmuted into this higher, whatever, magical elixir for consciousness and for... The bridal chamber of the thalamus. Yep. The, yeah. the bridegroom and the bride come together. Where the chemical wedding takes place. Exactly right. So that is it. That's the secret of human life. And we just gave it away for free, folks. Enjoy. You'll never hear that on any other show. You're welcome. Um, also, by the way, can I say one more thing? The reason the world is ending was this stuff was supposed to stay secret. And every time humanity discovers this secret, it has to be destroyed and start over again. So on behalf of Brad and myself, we're genuinely sorry that we brought about the apocalypse <laughs> by publicizing oh, this information. Well. It happens. I thought it was the vaccine, but yeah, sure. <laughs> it could be that. No, the vaccine had to happen because of the secrets. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's uh, yep. They corrupted the DNA because the secrets were out. Well, you are on season three, so you've had some time to uh, to Johnny Appleseed this stuff out to the people. Yep. Um, man, just so amazing. I just want to say sorry. Sorry for the end of the world. Apology accepted. <laughs> it had to go. It had to go at some point. <laughs> Um, but yeah, this has just been really fun and so many thoughts about the last few things you said, but I'm going to be respectful of your time and, and, and bite my tongue here. Uh, but Magical Egypt is a really amazing series. The visuals, the, the graphics where you overlay the statues with the parts of the brain, it makes it undeniable. I really think you guys should be proud of yourself with pushing not only the understanding of, of ancient Egypt and their culture further, but just brushing right past the Egyptologists, the authorities who have tried to keep this stuff secret, making us think that they were just some primitive slave culture dragging blocks around just because, you know, our modern elite have no respect for us. I don't know if that was always the case. I mean, there's a case to be made that if you go through this system, maybe we weren't led Maybe they weren't led by the least among them. They were led by the people who actually had the balls to go out to the furthest edges of consciousness. And that would be quite a paradigm to actually respect one's leaders and think that they had some kind of merit. But man, either way, just amazing stuff. And it's been a pleasure talking to you guys. What do you want to leave the people with in terms of links or info about watching the series or anything else you got going on? Maybe plans for a series four. One of the things that we're going to do, we, there is a series four, and it's about formal magic and includes a lot of the superstars of your show, Greg, Peter Mark Adams, Gordon, Stephen Skinner, the remarkable magic historian, Stephen Skinner, and a bunch of other people, Lon Duquette. We haven't seen Lon in a while. So it's a very focused study of magic, operative magic, and how that's another thing like Kundalini that's been incredibly suppressed. But beyond that, we are looking at taking just the artistic stuff and possibly doing a feature film. Uh, we're certainly made some inroads and I've done some basic work on taking the discoveries that we found and doing a, a feature film that just presents the artistic discoveries. That's in its very early phases. But you can watch the series at www.magicalegypt.com. And if you go to YouTube and you want to watch bits of Magical Egypt or promos or hours of Brad and I, speaking in an incredibly engaging manner. <laughs> it's all there on YouTube. Type in Magical Egypt. Brad and I just did an extended discussion of, uh, and a presentation of our discoveries in a new uh, YouTube that just went up a few days ago called Sympathy for the Baphomet. It's an interesting new development that just the way all these other statues from different periods of time were actually depictions of the brain stem, 
The Baphomet figure we just demonstrated is another one of those actual schematics where if you take the Baphomet and overlay it over a cutaway of the brain, it is exactly the shape that you see in the middle of your head. And it completely throws this whole idea of the Baphomet being a symbol of evil. All of these people have postured and virtue signaled about, oh, this is awful, watch out for this. And they've completely misunderstood the fact that the Baphomet art is just another in this series of artworks throughout time that have been trying to direct us to the real divinity in the universe, which is consciousness and the biological places where it doesn't arise from consciousness, but the biological areas that are associated with the experience of consciousness. And it just, it all speaks to the fact that the one thing we can't describe in Western science is consciousness. And in the old cultures, it was the seed from which everything else sprang. And so we can't describe it to this day, but the ancients seemed to very quite neatly schematize it and show it to you like a mirror. And it's not just for that sake, but it's that this is human destiny. And the reason you feel so empty and the reason that nothing makes sense is that the most important thing in the human experience has been, for some reason, we've talked about a couple of theories about why this might be, the most important thing about being a human has been extracted from us so that we have nothing but to work and be consumers and to you know buy things to fill the hole in our heart. And that hole wouldn't be there if we hadn't had this intellectual heritage, like our birthright, our intellectual, spiritual birthright taken away from us. And if you were to find out that there is an owner's manual for the human psyche, why wouldn't you want to find out about that? And that's the very thing that's suppressed and absolutely denied. And I just find that the most interesting thing in the world. And the anarchist in me would like to see a world where people stop listening to the authorities that tell you it's not there. It's like this thing that's in your house. Go and explore it. Find out for yourself. Don't just take someone else's word for it. I'll say this just real quick before we go here. Greg, thank you so much for having us on and for yeah. watching the show and picking up what we're putting down. Like I said, it's been a slow burn since we put this out. So the more eyes and minds we can get on this stuff is super helpful. And we wouldn't be doing any of this stuff if it wasn't just standing on the shoulders of John Anthony West. So it's more sort of like continuing his legacy and continuing his work and building on that. So it's the more people we can get looking at this stuff, the more people we can get eyeballs on Magical Egypt and on John and how we're just continuing to build that sort of the foundation that John set up for all of us. He knocked down the wall and we're all walking on the path. And so I just wanted to say thank you very much for reaching out and for having us on and letting us ramble and talk about this stuff. Of course, of course. I really appreciate what you guys have done, and I'm so happy I could have you here. I mean, any THC fan would love Magical Egypt. As Chance said, a lot of our guests are just peppered throughout that lineup, and it's amazing. I'm I'm lucky to even be on the outskirts of uh, these really genius-level thinkers today, these uh, counterculture people. Um, but amazing work, really insightful. Thanks for doing this, and take care, fellas. Good on you. Thank you. Can you believe it? A double guest, double whammy, two shows in a row. That's got to be pretty rare. But Chance and Brad, how about that? I'm sure a lot of you guys are familiar with the Magical Egypt series. I had definitely seen the first season, but kind of fell off after that. And I'm really psyched how this interview turned out. I don't think a lot of our audience would be surprised by the revelations to come out of the series in seasons two and three. But to have what I consider 100% or 95% definitive proof that a lot of these symbols and art motifs are encoding specific parts of the brain, that's really great. 
Of course, when you're taking two things and holding them up and saying this is an artistic representation of that, it's subjective. Some people will think it's a dead-on match and others won't. But when you see a dozen examples or more, it gets pretty tough to deny. And then you add in the Sumerian icons and it's like, whoa, this stuff goes back a long time. So there were a couple of references they made to a talk they did together on YouTube called Sympathy for the Baphomet. And I actually watched it before the interview. I was compelled by the title since it really has nothing to do with ancient Egypt. And what is really insane is that they show an MRI cross-section of the brain. Like, you take a brain and you slice it down the middle into a top and bottom half. And then you get a bird's eye view of the bottom half. Like, you're trying to get just that center layer image. And the pattern it shows is the Elephas Levi Baphomet image. That classic depiction. It is definitely there. It's like Levi had an MRI image and then thought, how do I fill this in to make it look like a goat? If you're familiar with the image, you know he even has this rounded emblem with the caduceus tucked into his pants. Yeah, that's there as well, right in the brain image. So what does that mean? Did this mental image come to Levi? Did he do it on purpose or was it subconscious? Did a spiritual being plant the image in his mind as to say, this is what I look like. And then it's just like some encoded brain scan image, like something a trickster would do. However it happens, it should show us that the hyperbole over this symbol being the most evil thing ever is a bit overblown and silly. It kind of makes me think of Lone Milo Dequette's book, It's All Inside Your Head, You Just Have No Idea How Big Your Head Is. But I also liked how this one tied in with Dr. Joanna Kuyava. Obviously, there was some good overlap. There's a couple of episodes in Magical Egypt Season 3 where I think in some places it's called Series X on the website. It's a little confusing. But some Kundalini experiencers talk about what it was like, and I just thought, how do these guys and Dr. Joanna not know each other? So as soon as I'm done here, I'm going to try to put them in touch for sure because I think they would get along great and are really after the same kind of material. And then when a couple of those experiencers say it's like accessing the Akashic record, I mean, all bets are off at that point. Why is this stuff valuable? Where do these symbols come from? Well, there it is. If this experience can be a portal to the information field, then wow. And if this kind of experience can be arrived at by entheogens, various rituals, and even sex with a woman, maybe an initiated woman who knows how to make it happen more regularly, well, the entheogens you can just make illegal, the rituals you can retire, and then you can encourage people to be super prude and ashamed about sex, and even make a rule that you shouldn't have sex until you're married, and then stop teaching that practice and remove the female goddesses that encoded this pathway. And that's about as far as you can go to really suppress the power of altered states of consciousness. And that's exactly what we see. That is the clampdown in a nutshell. And the making of ritual spaces where you could just make contact with beings or the field itself on command? 
Well, now you just jailbroke the simulation. I love it. And I wonder how many of those types of spaces still exist or are still in commission or are maybe hidden beneath state capitol buildings or below the Freemasonic basement, if you will. <laughs> and you know, when I was listening back, there was a part somewhere in there where I mentioned primitive people or people hanging out in huts in the dirt. And I was like, damn, I didn't mean for that to sound so derogatory. I throw no intended shade to the Dogon or any other indigenous culture. I sometimes get pretty fast and loose and casual with the language, but I hope it's pretty damn obvious that over the course of the show, I've gained a lot of respect for those sorts of cultures. And it's episodes like this that give the very reasons why, and also make the case that, depending on how you define it, in some areas they're more advanced and more developed than we are now. But my favorite part of this show, I think it was in the first hour, was that I loved Brad's point about dream incubation and the nightly ritual. We wash ourselves, we get into pajamas, we get into a dark room in a dark box and lay still. I mean, <laughs> kudos for that connection. It's like we've discussed how in a lot of areas nature is showing us something, but we have to take the time to observe and unpack it. And this kind of feels like another example of that. The world and culture can get as big and loud and distracting as it wants, but we all have to sleep. We have to wind down. We have to take a beat. I, of course, sleep with the TV or a podcast on to keep the mental chatter down, but regardless, eventually there are nights where the phone's dead or you've watched everything and you just got to go down with nothing. The fact that this is something that happens every 24 hours of your life the stars will align eventually, and that's that kind of infinite patience that is just built into the system. It'll get you. <laughs> so, I don't know. I like when subtler versions of big stuff just seem encoded into the human experience or the environment as if this system was designed to coax us into those avenues of thought and exploration and discovery. And then you see the cultures without the distractions of the Western world and Lucifer's modern technologies like the ancient Egyptians. And it's like, of course they went this hard at consciousness. Of course they did. So, a lot of fun. Unexpected episode for sure. Good times. Check out the series, Magical Egypt. THC fans are bound to love it. In higher side news, we are a little over half full on the Grammerica event, I'm hearing, which means like a dozen spots left or so. It is a weekend with me and them in a cabin near Mount Shasta for the weekend. Hikes, presentations, panel discussions, Q&As, all kinds of fun stuff. Coming up in February. Contact at thecabin.com for more. Maybe we'll even do some sort of ESETI drum circle. <laughs> Why the hell not, right? Also, not a huge deal, but I did add a few more crypto options to the list for THC Plus signups. I'll pretty much take any form of payment. I really don't care, as long as it's not inconvenient for me to get. But I added Ripple, Solana, Dogecoin, and Monero addresses to the official list of options when you go through the prompts to sign up. Dogecoin even. See, that's how little I actually care. Naysayers want to say crypto is valueless? Nah, pretty much any coin can get you THC+. 
And speaking of plus, as always, the second hour is double the pleasure, double the fun. Today we talked about ancient cathedrals and temples as gymnasiums for consciousness, being pregnant with ideas, the connection between altered states of consciousness and flowing water, how power and the exploration of consciousness are connected through time, the Arabian myth of the genie in the lamp, as well as the elite and contact with entities that feed on our pain. So, fun stuff. The interviews always keep going for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com. And while you're there, check out the site, search the archive by over 50 different subjects, buy some THC merch or t-shirts, and you can also leave me a voicemail for the next joint session. As for the calendar at HiresideMeetups.com, we have the Salida Moonlight Pizza Meetup in Salida, Colorado on September 30th. We have the Milwaukee, Oregon Metaphysical Society doing an aerospace expedition field trip thing at the Evergreen Aviation Museum. Seems fun. Also on October 1st is the Conspiracy Theorizers at High Springs Brewing Company in High Springs, Florida. Bring your sandbags. October 5th, the Waldo Hireside Meetups at KC Beer Co. in Kansas City, Missouri. October 6th, the Los Angeles Truthers go on to Flame International, the restaurant on Santa Monica Boulevard in L.A. Once again, I'm going to try to make it to that one. You know these L.A. things I like to try. October 6th, I'm going to mark it down right now. And we'll end it with this one, the Bizarre Tales podcast and THC York Meetup in York, Yorkshire, United Kingdom. It says Lee and Dan from the Bizarre Tales podcast, one of England's finest paranormal podcasts, will be at York's famous haunted Golden Fleece Pub. Okay, now we're talking. I love it. Always know that other shows are welcome to use our meetup calendar as well, as long as the event is free and the subject matter of the show overlaps with ours. I wish we had events every day, so the more the merrier. Tell your favorite show hosts to hop on in there, and they can get a free mention on the air of THC on top of meeting some of their audience, and not having to build out a site like this. Makes sense to me. But that's pretty much it. Big thanks again to Chance and Brad, Brad and Chance. I'm really glad we were able to do this. I hope you guys check out the series and spread it. Changing the perception of ancient Egypt and what people think of our ancestors is an important thing to get them to see through the more triggering deceptions of today. It's called Operation Inception. Get involved. So, there we go. I've done my part. Your move, Egyptian culture concealers, mind state suppressors, and kundalini deniers. Your fucking move. This is important. Hear what I said. I'm trying to tell you It's not paranoia, not in my head It's just the hard truth Knocked on your door while I still can To ask you a question Cause I know your head is still in the sand Don't be sheep till you slaughter for the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed but you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed Until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you see that we're so screwed? Don't you know?
it and wish, but we don't have a choice. It seems we're stuck here, but you can find noses, drown out the noise. Now use that altar, and up your magic game, and listen to THC, you know, you go with the entities. If you ever see the U. For the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed But you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed Until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung food? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this is another show complete. Remember, as much as you enjoyed this, which is just the free first hour, I hope you'll become a Plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews. You also can engage with other Plus members in the comments and the forums, and you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions I get, which is where can I find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show? Well, they are free downloads for Plus members too. And without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com where new first-time subscribers always get a free seven-day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check mailed to the P.O. Box, and I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. 
And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves. And I hope you'll join Plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me, and cheers to a better tomorrow.